But I want you to open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 9, and let's stand together. And we're going to read these words together this morning, verses 1 through 18. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 18, but I want to keep it all in context. So let's stand together and let's read these words together and pray, and then we will see what it is that the Lord has for us this morning. Paul writes, and he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father. Lord God, we stand in awe of you, in amazement of you. Lord, there is no one who can be your counselor. There is no one that can teach you anything. You are eternal God. You are glorious. Your word is supreme. Your purpose is uh, unimpeachable. Lord God, you are worthy of all glory and all praise. And you are worthy of all of our submission to you because you alone are God and we are not. And we are reminded of that continuously whenever we approach your holy word. Lord, you have a wisdom that we do not possess. There is a, a, a truth in Scripture that transcends everything that we deem to be true. And so as we come before you and we sit beneath your holy word, Lord God, we desperately desire that you would use your truth to shape and fashion our minds and our hearts and our wills, shape and fashion our souls, Lord God, so that they might be so that we might be made more and more into the image of the lord jesus christ we need that so desperately we need to think right thoughts about you we need to think right thoughts after you we need to have a heart that says yes and may amen to your commands 
We need to, Lord God, respond to you in the way, Father, that that brings life. And we know that the only reason that we respond to you in that way is because of your grace, is because of your mercy to an undeserving people like us. So as we open this word this morning, as we talk about things that, Lord God, are sometimes difficult for fallen hearts to hear, I pray that you would find in us no straining against the truth of God. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to understand, and I pray that you'd help us to worship as we should. So I pray, Lord, that you would empty me of myself and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Make me to speak your words in accordance with your will. Make my speech to be pleasing in your sight. Make me, Lord God, to say that only what is right in your eyes and empower and strengthen the preaching of your Holy Word this day for the sake of your people, Lord God, for the sake of those who are here who do not yet know Christ but upon whom you have set your sovereign love. Bring them, I pray, to Christ. We love you. We give you all glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, beloved, I was thinking about it. This morning we were beginning to dive into Paul's, you know, the bulk of Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 9, and specifically regarding the sovereignty and the freedom of God, God's right to be God, God's right as sovereign king to deal with his creatures in the way that he sees fit. In fact, As I was thinking about it, there's perhaps nothing that offends, so offends fallen humanity as the declaration of God's sovereign freedom to do as he pleases. I don't think there's anything that sets fallen humanity's hackles up like God proclaiming and acting like God, right? Especially because we have this imagined sovereignty of our own. We think we have the right to call all the shots in our lives. We think that we are independent, self, you know, self-exalting and self-energizing beings, and we are not, right? People strain against the sovereignty of God, God's sovereign freedom, and yet it is repeatedly attested to throughout the Scriptures. The Bible clearly teaches, for instance, Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Or Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Or Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Or Daniel 4, 34 through 35. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Now, here's the deal. I could go on and on with quotations from Scripture declaring the sovereign, you know, freedom of the living God. But you get the point. God's sovereign freedom over all things and over all creatures is powerfully and it is unavoidably attested to throughout the scriptures. And it's true of the text that we're reading this morning in Romans chapter 9. I want us to understand something here, beloved. I want us to get this through our minds and, and let this be settled. The God of the Bible is not a conditional sovereign. What do I mean by that? I mean this. I mean that God is not sovereign only if we, by our free will, allow or invite him to be. Oh, God, you can be my king. 
Oh God, I'm giving you just the benefit, the blessing of being my sovereign Lord. That's not how it works. He is sovereign Lord, period. And your invitation has nothing to do with it. God is not a conditional sovereign. He's not. In fact, ever since the fall, mankind has tried to exalt himself against God, contended with God for sovereignty. And in the words of Psalm 2, right, the collective mindset of fallen humanity regarding the Lord and his anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ, has been this. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us, right? That is our natural default position as fallen human beings. And so here's what I want to do. Before we get into this text this morning, I want to just give you a word regarding God's sovereign freedom, how we ought to approach these words, okay? I just want to give you a few things to think about. I want to exhort you to be careful this morning. First, as I mentioned to you last week, simply because this text is filled with difficult teaching, okay? We don't have the right to just skip over and say, well, it's not important. You know, all this does is it just causes controversy among people. And so we're just going to skip Romans 9 through 11 because for the, you know, in the, in the better part of, you know, the, you know, the goal of unity, we're just going to ignore God's word. Okay. That is entirely dishonoring to God. Okay. He inspired Paul to write these words for a reason. Listen, to what I'm going to tell you clearly that we know and honor God's sovereign freedom as God matters to him. Here it matters to him. He wants us to know of his sovereign freedom. Second, we should not approach this text, and I'm counseling you who are gung-ho, do not approach this text in a partisan spirit or with a view simply to debate and argument as if I want to hear everything the preacher has today so I can get some arrows and stick them in my quiver and shoot them at suspected people throughout the week. Okay? Don't do that. Don't approach the word of God in that way. That's never the right way to approach God's truth. Moreover, neither should you approach this text trying to soften or erase or eliminate phrases so as to make this text say what you want it to say rather than what it says. You hearing me? Make it, I want to make it say what I want it to say according to my preference or according to my tradition rather than what it actually says. Moreover, we can't dismiss it if we don't like what it says. Right? That's, that's never the way that to approach God's truth. That's not an option for any serious Christian. Rather, here's what we do, beloved. We approach this text this morning with reverence and with humility. We approach it with an acknowledgement that, you know what? I'm not in a position to understand everything God does exhaustively. I'm not. If I were in that position, then God would be no greater than I am. And we know God is far greater than any of us, right? More than that, there are just some things, and this is hard for people to accept, right? It really is. But there are just some things that God is not obligated to reveal to any of us. He's not. The secret things, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may know, or that we may do, I mean, all the words of this law. There are some things that just belong to God, and we have to be okay with that. He's given us what he wants us to know through the pen of the Apostle Paul, Right? But make no mistake, what we are reading here is Scripture. It's not philosophical speculation. It's not one man's opinion. It's not Paul sat down one night and said, hmm, I think I'm going to come up with an explanation for how God saves sinners, whether he likes it or not. This is Scripture. It's inspired by the living God. He's writing the very Word of God here. So whatever else we do with this text, we must submit ourselves and our judgment to the teaching of of the scripture. And if we don't understand it, 
if we, if we find ourselves straining against it, then this is what we must do. In a spirit of humility, in a spirit of humility, we need to pray for the Holy Spirit to enlighten us. Because we have no option. We have to submit to the truth of God. And we need to submit to the truth of God, like I said last week, not grudgingly, but joyfully. None of this fiction that some people like to say of, I have to believe it, but I don't have to like it. Yes, you do have to like it. And the reason I say that is this. It's because ultimately what needs to happen when we get to the end of these three chapters is exactly what happens to Paul when he breaks out in this paean of praise, in this worship, in this doxology of the living God, celebrating his sovereign freedom and salvation, saying, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Does that sound like grudging submission to you? No, that's worship. So let's get into this text this morning. What's going on here? I want us to remember the context, right? We're coming out of Romans 8. And in Romans 8, you'll remember, Paul has been exalting and magnifying the purposes of God, his gracious love, you know, the the gracious work of his redemption, his rescue of sinners, right? And it leads him to say, look, let your eyes fall here again. It leads him to say in Romans 8, verses 28 through 30, these words, we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, according to his divine purpose, right? For those whom he foreknew, loved before the foundation of the world, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also glorified. And those whom he, or he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, right? And then, after describing all the ways in which God is for his people, he sums it all up, wraps it all up by saying in verses 38 and 39, these, these words that, we, that so many know, we love, we treasure these words. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And to that we say what? Amen, right? And so after exulting in the Lord and in his gospel, this certain assurance that God has saved his people and that his salvation is guaranteed, Paul then expresses this lament that we read, you know, when we were reading this text. This lament that we looked at last week, this heaviness in his heart, his heartbreak, his great sorrow, his unceasing anguish that here he is, a preacher of the gospel, and the gospel is being preached throughout the world, and yet there are so many Israelites who are yet lost and unbelieving. So many Israelites who had received so many massive spiritual privileges, right? He lists them all. And they're still lost, cut off from Christ. Well, why is that so? I mean, obviously, that's the question. Why is that so? Is there something wrong with the gospel? Why isn't the gospel leading to the the, the mass salvation of Jews if Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, right? Why is it that we're not seeing all these people come to faith? Did God fail in his promises toward the nation of Israel? Did he fail, you know, to redeem them in his promises to to make them his people? Did he fail in his purposes toward his chosen nation? And if he did, if he did, might he also fail in his purposes with the church? Just how secure is our salvation anyway? Now, here's the thing, beloved. Those are serious questions. 
if you are paying attention and you're reading Romans and you're, you're, you, you understand the history of the nation of Israel and you comprehend the, the history of the, of the church, that, those are serious questions, right? They, they deserve a serious answer. And so Paul deals with it in this text that we're looking at this morning. And he answers this concern, first of all, by making an overarching comprehensive statement. And that overarching comprehensive statement is this. The word of God has not failed. It has not failed. Look, starting in verse 6, Paul says this. But it is not, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Well, why? Here's why. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. See, Paul makes this blanket, all-exclusive statement of fact. And that statement of fact is, look, the word of God has not failed. The word of God cannot fail. His promises to Israel have not literally fallen down. That's what the word means there. They they cannot. Here's why. Because God's counsel stands and he accomplishes his purpose. We just read that in the Old Testament, right? God can't fail in anything that he does. His promises don't fall to the ground. What he purposes always comes to pass. So then why are there so many, why are there so few Jewish converts, I mean, compared to the Gentiles? And the answer lies in this fact. It lies in this statement. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Well, what does he mean? Well, this is what he means. Not everybody who's ethnically Jewish, not everybody that can trace their lineage, their physical lineage, their genealogy back to Israel, Jacob, right? Or to his grandfather, Abraham. Not everybody that can do that is part of the true spiritual Israel. Not all Israel's Israel. And in making his point, Paul is saying it in three different ways. Look at how he says this. He starts off in verse 6 by saying that not all Israel is Israel. Then in verse 7, he says, nor are they children because they're Abraham's descendants. And then in verse 8, he says, not all the children of the flesh are also children of God or children of the promise. So he says the same thing three different ways just to make sure he's clear. And his point is this. Listen, it was never God's intention from the very beginning It was never God's intention. It was never his promise to save every last ethnic Israelite. That was not his promise. He did not make that promise to the people. In fact, the covenant promises of God have always been found, have always found fulfillment in a smaller group within national Israel, among which the scriptures refer to as the remnant, right? The remnant. God's promises have always and only been fulfilled in the remnant. They have never been fulfilled in such a way that every last one of national Israel was counted as a child of God. That was never his intention. His promises were to a remnant. His purposes are with a remnant. This believing group within the greater nation of Israel. In fact, you remember, Paul already referenced this. He already hinted at this. Earlier in the epistle, you remember back in Romans chapter 2 when he said this, for, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, right? Nor is circumcision outward and physical, right? That was the mark of, of being of the people of God, right? But a Jew is one, what? Inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Just a survey of Israel's history makes this plain. Look, when you look at the name, so many in the nation of Israel were stiff-necked and unbelieving, weren't they? And it wasn't like it didn't start until centuries after the Exodus. It started on the wilderness wanderings, didn't it? Mount Sinai, golden calf, ring a bell. By the time of the overthrow of the northern kingdom of, of the, by the Assyrians in 721 B.C. and the destruction of the southern kingdom by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., it was obvious that as a nation, as a whole, it was apostate. And only a small number of Israelites gave any indication of being among God's genuine people. Isn't that true? 
It wasn't much different at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of the nation was what? Going about its business with little true faith. Only a few individuals like Joseph and Mary or Elizabeth and and Zechariah or Simeon and Anna, right? Were anticipating the promised Messiah and that by God's, you know, invitation. When Christ came to his own, you remember we read it in John, his own people did not receive him. So what Paul's getting at is this, within physical Israel, listen, There is a true Israel who trusts in the living God, who really does believe and rest on God's promises, who are the people of God, who have been saved and recipients of the promise and the, and the, and the, the word of God, but not everybody. And that was never God's intention. And if we look around the professing church today, beloved, we see the same thing, don't we? Don't we? Not everyone who goes to church is truly a child of God, are they? Are they? Not everybody who raises their hands in worship is truly a child of the living God. Not everybody who gives faithfully is truly a child of God. There are true and false believers. There are wheat and tear together in the visible church. There are some who just go through the motions. They show no evidence of God's grace in their life. And there are some who know Christ in truth and show the fruit of salvation whose lives demonstrate that they belong to God and they're among his people. They're among his remnant. God's word hasn't failed because God didn't promise to save every Israelite. God purposed to save a remnant by his grace to receive the blessings of salvation. A remnant chosen, now listen to me, a remnant chosen from out of the greater nation of Israel. How? Here's how. According to the freedom and the sovereignty of God. According to God's sovereign choice. And Paul's going to show us that unmistakably. Go back to verse 6. Go back to verse 6 and read through verse 9 with me as we look at God's sovereign freedom in election here. Look what he says. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have shall have a son. Now, I want you to see this. Go to the next slide, bro. I want you to see this. In describing God's sovereign election, in describing his choosing a people for salvation, Paul brings up the three most famous people in Israel's history, right? The three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and then the second, Jacob. Now, I want you to notice here, Paul doesn't really say a whole lot about Abraham. He doesn't really, you know, say a lot because he doesn't need to. It's pretty self-evident that God chose Abraham, right, for a salvific relationship with him and to be the father of the nation through whom Christ would come. It's pretty obvious. We see that, right? When, when God called him, Abraham was a pagan. He was an idol worshiper living in Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham had no knowledge of the one true God because nobody in Ur had knowledge of the one true God. But God chose Abraham anyway. Not his brother Nahor, not anybody else. God picked Abraham out of everybody else on the entire earth to be the friend of God. Apart from anything good or virtuous that was in him, he chose him just simply because it pleased God to choose him. That's it. That's it. But God's sovereign choice doesn't stop there. He takes up the case of Isaac, right? Abraham's son, the son of promise. You remember how it went when God called Abraham. His whole thing was, come, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to bless the nations through you. I'm going to give you a land. You know, come, this is this covenant that I'm going to make with you and with your descendants. He promised him that he would be the father of a great nation, that he would give to Abraham a son, the son of promise, right? But you remember what happened. What happened? Abraham 
grew impatient, didn't he? Sarah became discouraged. And so she's like, look, I'm going to give you my slave Hagar and you have a child with her so that we can have an heir. And you remember, Abraham was dumb enough to listen to his wife's advice. No, really. Ignore God, listen to your wife. It'll go great. Right? So they have a child, Ishmael, through Hagar. And when Ishmael had been weaned, you remember Abraham threw a great feast and he pled with God, let this be the child of promise. Let this be the one through whom the covenant comes. Let this be the one who receives your grace. Choose this one, God. And God said, no, no, no. He's the child of the flesh. No, the child of promise will be a child that will be born to you and to Sarah. That's what God said, right? Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then several years later, the angel of the Lord told Abraham, about this time next year, I, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And it seemed utterly unlikely, didn't it? Here was Sarah. She's like 90 years old. She's past menopause. She's past, you know, the, the, the whole birthing process. There's nothing, you know, she's old and barren, right? Abraham's old, impotent, and good as dead. Almost 100 years old. And yet by a miracle of the Lord, not only is Isaac conceived... You know, this child of God's promise, he is conceived and he is born to a woman who is ancient. Now, here's the deal. Both Ishmael and Isaac were the physical offspring of Abraham, weren't they? Weren't they? They were both the physical offspring of Abraham. But only one of these two sons was the child of promise. It was through Isaac, according to God's choice, that the promised line of descendants would be preserved and propagated. God chose Isaac for this grace, and he rejected Ishmael. Again, Ishmael was the physical offspring of Abraham, but Isaac Isaac was the spiritual offspring, wasn't he? He was the child of promise, and therefore the child of God. It's not the children of the flesh, Paul says, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring, counted as the children of God. Well, what was the difference? Isaac, you know, what was the difference? Here's the difference. Isaac was the child of promise because of God's free and sovereign grace, because of his, because of his creative, creative and miraculous power to bring Isaac into existence. Follow with me on this. The difference between Isaac and Ishmael is not merely that God chose Isaac and passed over the other son, but that by his miraculous grace, God actually brought Isaac into existence when it was utterly impossible according to human means. Do you see that? That's the point here. Ishmael was born of Abraham's natural powers according to the flesh, but Isaac was brought forth by a supernatural work of God, and that made all the difference. First of all, listen to me. The promise regarding Isaac was not made after he was born, right? But it was before he was ever conceived in the womb. Years before he was conceived. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? God saw Isaac existing years before he was conceived, right? Not only that, not only that, the promise was not given to Isaac because he was born by miraculous means. Rather, Isaac was born by miraculous means because the promise had been given. In other words, God brought forth Isaac so that his promises would indeed be fulfilled. They would not be fulfilled any other way. 
He sovereignly chose Isaac before he's ever conceived to be the promised offspring, and then he brought him into existence. He created him by his own miraculous power because he chose Isaac to be the one through whom the covenant and the promises were to be worked out. And he was distinct from Ishmael because he was born of the Spirit of God. Where am I getting that? Where are you getting that? Are you making that up? No. I get that from Galatians 4. If you turn to Galatians 4, read these words. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Chapter 4, starting verse 22. It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. And then you jump down to verses 28 and 29 to read this. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who is born according to the spirit so it is now well who's the one that was born according to the flesh ishmael who's the one that was born according to the spirit isaac so paul is saying listen first of all in this illustration that i'm giving to you from isaac and ishmael you need to understand that salvation has nothing to do with physical lineage or physical power or the the might of the flesh it's a matter of divine grace god's sovereign choice and Christians, they are, they are children of promise, just like Isaac. Like Isaac, we are born according to the Spirit, the new birth, sovereignly bestowed by God on whom He wills, right? Salvation is not a matter of God. Or salvation, I mean, is a matter of God's choice and His supernatural power. Since according to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, we are all spiritually dead. And by nature, we are children of wrath, following after the prince of the power of the air. For us to be born according to the Spirit, For us to be made spiritually alive, God's got to do a miracle. He's got to do a miracle, just as he did with the conception of Isaac. And you know this if you've read John chapter 3. He doesn't do this in everyone. God does not make everyone to be regenerate and born again, born from above. He doesn't do that in everyone, but only in those whom he chooses for the blessing of salvation. And then Paul turns to Jacob. And there, God's sovereign freedom in election is brought into bold relief. Now, some could argue, right, and say, well, listen, Paul, we get your argument so far, but it's not quite conclusive. Some could say, well, you know, of course God chose Abraham. He had to start somewhere, right? And we could say, well, of course, you know, he chose, he chose Isaac over Ishmael. Who wouldn't? Ishmael's mom was a slave and an Egyptian, and Isaac's mom was a Jewess. Of course he would choose Isaac. So Paul says this. And not only so, in fact, that's a, a Greek phrase, kind of idea is like, let me make myself clear. Not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, election is not about works, or be, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This example, this illustration is an even more powerful one than the last. And here's why. Unlike Isaac and Ishmael, both of these boys were born to children. They were the children of the same Jewish parents. In fact, they were twins, fraternal twins, right? Second, Esau was the firstborn. And according to the usual Jewish standard, Esau should have received the greater blessing, right? Right? Third, and this is most important, 
God's choice of Jacob instead of Esau was made before either of them was born and before either of them had done anything good or evil in order to distinguish themselves one from the other. The decision of God to choose Jacob over Esau happened before they were even born and irrespective of anything at all but God's choice. It had nothing to do with what they did. This distinction was drawn before either one of them, before either of them had been born and had done anything either good or bad. In other words, God's election, His choice, it's not on the basis of anything done by the individual chosen. It's an unconditional election. It's unconditional. God chose Jacob over Esau before they were born, before they'd done anything good or bad. His choice of Jacob was unconditional. It was rooted, it was rooted not in what Jacob could or might possibly do. Or God looking down the corridors of time to see all that Jacob was going to do and choosing Jacob over Esau. In fact, Jacob was not appreciably a better dude than Esau. God's choice was rooted specifically in his sovereign will and his sovereign will alone. His own, his own determination. It was according to his desire and that's it. I want you to understand this with me, beloved, because this is really important to understand. Jacob and Esau had the same equal claim on God's grace. They had the same equal claim on God's grace. You know what that is? Absolutely no claim at all. Neither of them had any claim on God's grace. Both of them, like David says, were conceived in iniquity. Paul has already told us since the fall, in the, he's already told us in the book of Romans that since the fall, every human being has been conceived and born in a state of guilt before God because of Adam's sin. Isn't that true? We've been born with a sinful nature. We're born under the bondage of sin. We willingly do that which is evil. There is no humanly qualitative, there was no humanly qualitative difference between Jacob and Esau. What made the difference between the two of them was simply this declaration by God. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now that quotation comes from Malachi. But what does it mean? God said this. These are the words of God. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. But what does it mean? It means... When God says he loved Jacob, it means he foreknew Jacob. Like we saw it back in Romans chapter 8. It means that he set his love upon Jacob before the foundation of the world. That he loved him with a sovereign, unconditional, and electing love that distinguished him from Esau. God chose to give Jacob his electing grace, but he passed Esau by. God chose Jacob to be a child of God despite his sinfulness, despite his iniquity. But he did not choose the same with Esau. He left Esau in his willful sinfulness. Now let me, let me emphasize that. In his willful sinfulness. He left him in his willful rebellion. He left Esau in his willful iniquity. He left Esau under the just wrath of God. And in that sense, God hated Esau. Now I know we recoil from that word being, being attached at all to God. Right? I mean, when we hear something like that, we kind of like stiffen up. You can't say that about God, right? Some of us don't let our kids say the, the H word, right? Not hell, hate. We get nervous with that. But beloved, we must not infuse God's hatred with the characteristics of human hatred, right? Malice and vindictiveness and bitterness, right? God's hatred, it's a holy hatred. It's a righteous hatred. His wrath is being poured out on the ungodliness and the unrighteousness of man even now. And it will be poured out in its full fury on the day of judgment. 
If God loves holiness, he must hate sin. And in fact, the Psalms tell us that he hates all evildoers. And that righteous hatred is exactly that. It's righteous because everything that God does is holy and it's righteous. In this illustration of Jacob and Esau, Paul is showing us that that God's election is not a matter of human works. But it's a matter of sovereign love and grace. And it's got to be that way. Beloved, listen, again, for the umpteenth time, we have nothing to commend us to God. All our imagined righteousness, Isaiah says, is what? As filthy rags. And that is, that's a euphemistic translation of that. And not to mention our sin. Salvation is a matter of God's sovereign choice to call his elect out of darkness and into the light of Christ. It's a matter of God's purpose in election, Paul says. Well, what is that? What is God's purpose in election? Here's what it is. The purpose of God's election is to create for himself a people. It is to guarantee for himself the existence of a people through the redemption of sinners for his, you know, infinitely glorious grace through the working of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The purpose of election is to actually create for God a people to belong to him from out of a Mass of people, all included, who otherwise would be under his wrath. Everyone. And rejected. God's purpose of election is to choose for himself a people whose eyes will be opened to the glory of what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ to provide a savior for sinners and who will believe by faith and who will then worship God forever and ever in heaven. I want to say this to you. God's election of sinners is a positive thing. I don't understand why it is that it has gotten such a negative connotation. I don't understand why it is that it is viewed by some with such horror or or disgust. I don't get it. It's a positive thing. It's not negative. Through election, God is creating for himself a people, a people who otherwise, listen to me, would not exist, would not exist. A vast multitude of worshipers who will glory in him and magnify the praise of his name. God has to do that. If God did not actively create, did not actively choose people for himself and actively, you know, create the people of God through his sovereign election, there would be no one saved. Nobody. Not you. He's got to choose sinners to salvation because we would never choose him. Right? Isn't that true? Look, Paul's already told us, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's what theologians call radical depravity. What that means is, is that, you know, there's not a portion of our being that hasn't been ruined by sin. Our minds, our emotion, our will, they're all in bondage to sin. Sin darkens our natural understanding. It hardens our hearts. So that instead of fleeing to God, who is our only hope, we flee from Him. And unless God first set His electing love on us and regenerate us and renew us and effectually call us to faith, we would never come to God. Not one of us. But that's exactly what God does. That's exactly what he does. He chooses for himself a people and he saves them according to his own will and his purpose. And that's not just what the Old Testament teaches. It's what the New Testament teaches too. Jesus said what? For many are called, but few are what? Say it. Chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. 
He said, you did not choose me, but what? I chose you. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, right? We see in the New Testament this. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Wait, not because of me? No, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. For we know, brothers, beloved by God, that he has chosen you. Not to mention the first two chapters of Ephesians, right? It's clear that Paul is teaching the sovereign freedom of God to choose for himself a people out of all sinful mankind because he anticipates, listen to me now, the accusation that those who hate this truth are going to make. Namely, that God is unjust. That God is unjust to choose to save some and not save others. God is unjust to choose for himself a people. God is unjust to choose some and not everybody, right? That's the obvious argument that God is somehow unjust. So Paul says this, verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Or God forbid is what he says there, right? For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. What do we see here? Well, let me just first say this, okay? Again, let me say a couple things. Again, Number one, it's very clear that Paul is teaching here election in the way that I have described it. God's sovereign freedom to choose those whom he desires to be his own from the sinful mass of humanity. And again, the reason we know that is because of the objection that he faces here. Second, let me say this, that this is the death knell to that that common definition of election where I mentioned earlier, God looks down the corridors of time and sees who will believe in him and then therefore chooses them for salvation. Because if that were the case, then there would be no cry of injustice. God would just be choosing somebody who chose him first. There would be no problem there, right? Well, of course God chose that person because they chose him first. He saw that they would. That's fair, right? Right? Paul is clearly teaching God's sovereignty and salvation because he anticipates the objection. But where does this accusation of injustice against God spring from? Where does it come from? I'll tell you where it comes from. It comes from the misbegotten idea that man is sovereign over his life, that we are independent, self-determining, autonomous beings, and that everybody everywhere has an equal right to God's favor and that whatever God does for one, he must do for all. You, get, you know the idea. It's been ingrained in you whether you know it or not. If one person gets a cupcake, everybody gets a cupcake. If one person gets a trophy, everybody gets a trophy. If one person gets a say, everybody gets a say, right? Right? That's why liberals, are their minds are blowing up with Elon Musk and Twitter. Oh, how dare you do what you want to do on Twitter? Because I own it. I own it. It belongs to him. He bought it for quite a bit of money. This objection springs from the idea that the highest glory in the world is man's glory. It's not. In fact, I'm just going to say this. One of the clearest marks of the depths of depravity in the human soul 
is that fallen mankind is more disposed, they're more likely to charge God with injustice than to blame themselves for willful unbelief in their rejection of God. Say it again. One of the clearest marks of the depth of human depravity in the soul is that fallen mankind is more disposed to charge God with injustice than to blame themselves for their willful unbelief and rejection of God. I'll tell you what, we need to be very careful, beloved, that we do not think like entitled American Christians and instead think like biblical ones. Is there an injustice on God's part? By no means, Paul says. He couldn't shoot it down any harder than he does here. As the righteous sovereign over everything, God is not unjust to grant mercy to some but not to others. He's not. Because everybody deserves his judgment. In fact, he points it out from Scripture. Can I just say something too? We need to get to a place where we realize that arguing against Scripture is arguing for death over life. Arguing against Scripture is about the dumbest thing a human being can do. I didn't say the the dumbest. It's about the dumbest. It's one of the most foolish, arrogant things a human being can do. Arguing against Scripture. Here's the bottom line. When Paul defends his argument according with with the right use of scripture not not some whack job that just pulls it out of context what when he defends his point with the use of scripture what that ought to do is silence our mouths now look what he says he says to moses i will have mercy on whom i will have mercy and i will have compassion on whom i have compassion so it depends not on human will or exertion but on god who has mercy now what's paul quoting from there he's quoting from exodus 33:19 let me remind you of the context there okay Moses had gone up to Mount Sinai. Remember to receive the Ten Commandments? He'd gone up there. And while he was up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, you'll remember that the Israelites grew restless at the bottom of the mountain. And so they came up to Aaron and they compelled him to create for them a golden calf, which he did without much pushback. And a vast number of them engaged in this worship of this idol, right? They engaged in gross idolatry and sexual immorality. And after Moses came down off the mountain, you'll remember... That, you know, he, he executed, he destroyed the golden calf, he executed judgment on the leaders of the rebellion, and then he went back up the mountain to intercede for the nation so that God wouldn't kill them all. Remember? So he goes up and he tells God, look, God, if you will not forgive the nation, I'm paraphrasing this, but if you will not forgive the nation, then I would rather be blotted out of your book of life, the book that you've written. And God said, no, no, I'm not going to forgive all of them. I won't. Instead, he sent a plague upon the people, killing some and sparing others, right? And then Moses said, well, please, these ones that, you know, don't let, don't take away your presence from us. You know, we, if we go without your presence, I'm not going. I, please don't take your presence away from us. And, and God said, okay, I'll be gracious. I will go with you. But then it comes to the last thing where Moses says, please show me your glory, right? I want to see your glory. And God's answer was this. This is Exodus 33, 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious or compassionate to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And you need to follow with me because this is what's going on. In other words, God, in essence, says to Moses this. Moses, this is who I am. This is the I am. I know I introduced you to myself as the I am back at that burning bush. But this is the essence of who I am. My glory, my goodness is displayed in my freedom. My sovereign freedom 
to show mercy and compassion to whomever I wish. I'm not obligated to show mercy to anybody because all have sinned and they're all guilty and they're all worthy of judgment. But I am free to show my goodness by giving it to some and withholding it from others. That's who I am. Now, I want you to notice at that point, God did not say to Moses, is that okay with you? Is that checking off your boxes? It wasn't a matter of whether Moses was like, oh, that sounds great or not, was it? God has the right to show mercy to whom he wants. Now, you can say that's unjust, but it's not. Because mercy is not a matter of right for anybody. For instance, we've already seen this with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They weren't deserving the least of God's mercy. And neither were Ishmael or, 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 or Esau. And when God chose to pass Ishmael and Esau by to leave them in their willful sin and their rebellion toward him, I want you to hear me. He did not do them in injustice. He wasn't unfair to them. They received what? What they'd earned, didn't they? They received what they deserved. They received what they desired. That's not injustice. That's perfect justice, isn't it? God is just. In his sovereign and free election, nobody is treated unjustly by God. But some do receive mercy and compassion from him. They're given what they didn't earn, what they don't deserve. But for God to show compassion and mercy to some and not to others does not make him unjust. God has the sovereign right to determine to whom he'll show mercy and compassion and who he won't. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It's not a requirement that God be merciful to to everybody or even to anyone. Nor can anybody demand mercy as a right. A man never has a right to mercy. To talk of deserving mercy is a contradiction in terms. Mercy for it to be mercy cannot be compelled or obligated. It's a matter of God's own will and his own good pleasure. Mercy to some, but not all, is not unjust. Well, what about those to whom, you know, to whom mercy is shown? What about justice then? When God shows mercy and compassion to his elect sinners, he still upholds his justice. It's not that he just ignores sin and throws it away and acts like it doesn't exist. It's not like he just turns a blind eye to human sin. Instead, for elect sinners, when he shows mercy, he deals with justice in an extremely costly way. Namely, the sacrificial atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't ignore people's people's sin when he shows them mercy. That would be unjust. Instead, He judges their sin on the head of Christ, requiring the payment for that sin by the blood of Jesus that has been shed to pay the debt of our iniquity. There is no injustice in God's mercy and in his compassion. And there is no obligation for God to show mercy and compassion to everyone. He's merciful to whom he wishes. He's compassionate on whom he will. And salvation depends not on It depends, I mean, on God's mercy and not, as Paul says, on human will or exertion. It depends on God who has mercy. Again, it can't depend on the will of man. Salvation cannot depend upon the will of man, what people like to call free will. You know why? Because somebody who's lost doesn't have free will. Well, what do you mean? He can choose what he eats. He can choose what he he wears for a tie. He can choose how he dresses. He can choose whatever. Sure, he can choose a lot of things within the realm in which he's given choice. But fallen mankind is spiritually dead. He has no will in the arena of the spirit. Zero. In fact, his will is entirely in bondage to sin. And by nature, he's separated from the life that's in God. He doesn't desire the truth. He does not desire God. 
There's no fallen man who seeks after God. That's why seeker-sensitive churches are a waste of time. No man wills to believe in Christ apart from the sovereign mercy of God to change our will by his sovereign will. Nobody believes apart from God's grace. It's not in us to do so. And likewise, it can't depend upon human exertion and human works because, all, again, all of our righteous works are like filthy rags in the sight of God. It can't be a matter of human exertion and effort and striving because nobody has the power or the virtue necessary to save themselves. We cannot set ourselves apart as worthy of salvation because we're not. You can't make yourself electable. It's got to be according to God's sovereign mercy or salvation won't be at all. Now, some might object. There are. There are people that will object to this and they'll say, well, there's got to be something in man that motivates God's election. There's got to be something in man that motivates God to choose him for salvation. There's got to be something that we can attach to humanity that obligates God somehow. Like, God can't just choose according to his sovereign mercy and according to his sovereign compassion. He can't just choose some and not others. So there's got to be a condition that differentiates mankind one from another. And my question to you would be this. What is that condition? What would that condition be? Robert Haldane addresses this perfectly. He says, what's that condition? Is it faith? Faith is the gift of God. Is it promise? Promises, I'm sorry, is it repentance? Christ is exalted a prince and a savior to grant repentance. Is it love? God promises to circumcise the heart in order that sinners might love him. God does it. Well, is it good works? His people are the workmanship of God created unto good works beforehand. Is it perseverance to the end? God's people are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. He keeps them. Is it true that all these things, it is true that all these things are commanded of Christians and enforced by the most powerful motives. Consequently, they are duties which require the exercise of our faculties, but they are all assured and empowered by the decree of election. Some may say, well, if salvation is a matter of God's sovereign choice, what's the point of preaching or sharing the gospel? Why even bother? Why waste your time? Isn't God, aren't God's people going to be saved? I mean, if salvation is a matter of sovereign choice, why waste your time? Well, first, because God commands it. That should be enough, but so often it's not. So here's the other part of it. It's because preaching and teaching and sharing the gospel is the appointed means by which, salva- by sal- by which sinners are saved. It's the appointed means of salvation for sinners. And while they naturally, all naturally reject the gospel, here's what God does. He makes his elect willing to respond in faith on the day of their salvation. God uses means. And the faithful preaching of the word is the means by which God's elect are brought to him. We'll see that in Romans 10. By which they're called and justified and sanctified and glorified. In fact, far from being a detriment to the preaching of the word of God, God's election, the fact of God's sovereign choosing of his people, guarantees that there are those who will respond with faith to the preaching of the gospel everywhere throughout all of humanity and therefore serves as the highest motivation to make the gospel known. In fact, even more than that, let me say this. Believing in election keeps you from tampering with the gospel. You ever thought about that? Believing in election keeps you from tampering with the gospel to try to make it more appealing, to try to make it more, you know, um, 
approachable by, by fallen sinful man, to make it a little more palatable to fallen sinful man. It protects the integrity of the gospel instead of when a preacher believes in sovereign election by God. It protects the integrity of the gospel instead of him perverting it in order to get a response from fleshly people. We're going to give away gas cards this week. 50 bucks. I can save you in 50 seconds. Come down here and pray this prayer. When you believe that it's God who saves, you're not tempted to distort the gospel. And woe to those who do. Woe to those who do. Woe to those who put evil for good and good for evil. And light for dark and dark for light. Woe to you. Moreover, some of you might be saying, well, if salvation is a matter of God's choice, then there's really no need to pursue holiness, is there? I mean, if salvation is guaranteed by the sovereign choosing of God, then I don't need to pursue holiness or godliness or anything like that. Well, yeah, you do. Actually, you do. Because the Word of God says that He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Maybe some of you are saying, this is hard for me to wrap my mind around. This is hard for me to... You know, I hear what you're saying, and the argument's pretty tight. I get it. It's not my argument, by the way. It's Paul's. And you might say, well, yeah, I get it. But it's just hard for me to wrap my mind around. I'm not sure I'm really getting all this. Listen, one of the important components of being a follower of Christ is to believe the plain teaching of the Scripture even when it might be hard to understand. And here's why that's important. If you just reject this truth out of hand that's so clear in the Word of God because it's uncomfortable to you or because you just don't want to believe it or you don't understand it, then listen to me. There are going to be many teachings in Scripture that you will object to and that you will reject for the exact same reasons. The exact same reasons. Right? We know what God says about fornication and adultery, but, you know, we're an enlightened society and we've moved past that. No, we haven't. No, we haven't. In fact, if you find yourself objecting, listen, we believe the Word of God, don't we? Because it's the Word of God, right? Right? Truth is truth, beloved, not because you believe it, but because God says it. Isn't that correct? And if you find yourself objecting to these things, I want you to, I want to warn you to be very, very careful. Listen, I, I'm serious when I say this. Don't, don't tune me out right now. If, you, if you're somebody who finds yourself objecting to these things, I would counsel you to be very, very careful. Be careful of putting yourself in the place of God and telling him how he should save sinners. You, a sinful being, telling God how he ought to get it done. Be careful that you don't exalt yourself above the scriptures or put yourself in a place to judge the goodness of God or think that you are wise enough to judge the all-wise God. God's purpose is bigger than we think, and it's not primarily about us. Newsflash, this isn't about you. In fact, it's about God's determination to show his power and his glory in all of creation. And we see that in Paul's illustration of God's dealings with Pharaoh here at the end. I'm going to speed up a little bit because we've got the Lord's Supper. But stay with me. Paul says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, this is the pur- for this purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Let's think about what he's saying here. Okay. Pharaoh was the king of the greatest nation of his time, Egypt. And he didn't rise to power by just fortuitous circumstances. He rose to power by the hand of God, right? He was exalted by Egypt as a god, and Pharaoh thought he was one. 
And he said to the Lord, said of the Lord, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. That didn't work out real well for him. Scripture says that Pharaoh lifted his heart against God because God had hardened him to do so. Now, to be fair, the scriptures, if you read the story, it says that God hardened his heart and Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And God hardened his heart and Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But there's no escaping the fact that God actually did, in fact, harden Pharaoh's heart. But you've got to understand what that means. It doesn't mean, look, God did not have to put evil into Pharaoh's heart. He didn't inject sin into Pharaoh's heart, okay? He didn't coerce him to to sin against his will. God didn't have to. Pharaoh was a proud sinner. All God needs to do to harden a sinner's heart is to remove all restraint and leave them to their sin and abandon them to their own desires and give them over to their own sin. Isn't that what we read in Romans chapter 1 when he gave them over? Isn't it? Haldane says, listen, when a man is left entirely to himself, the commands, the warnings, the judgments, the deliverances, and all the truths of Scripture become causes for hardness and insensibility and pride and presumption, even the delay of merited punishment, where with respect to Pharaoh, the occasion of hardening his heart. God hardened him heart. He raised him up and he hardened his heart. And God has a reason for what he does. And as we know, he's not unjust in his dealings with men. In his sovereignty, he has the right and the freedom to harden willful sinners for his greater purpose. And that greater purpose is to display his power and his glory in all the earth. It's to magnify himself as supreme. Now, some people, especially those who think that man's glory is supreme, get upset with this. Well, that just, that seems beneath the God that I would make. That's not a good motivation. Okay, let me ask a question. What's greater than God's glory? What's greater than God's glory? Nothing. What should be exalted above God's glory? Nothing. It's right that God's name be glorified. God is glorious. This is his earth. He should be glorified because this is a universe that is run by, guess who? God and not us. And that which is right will in the end be done. And praise God that it's so. Yeah, God raised Pharaoh up. He removed all restraint. He hardened him. He passed him by because it was part of his purpose to magnify his glory throughout the earth and demonstrate his power and declare himself to the nations. God's dealing with Pharaoh had an evangelistic purpose. His name spread throughout the world in displaying both his judgment of some and his mercy to others. God knows what he's doing. And he has the right to do whatever he does. And so then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. So how do we respond to these words this morning? I'm going to move quick. Number one, let me just say this. These words reveal God as he is. Not maybe God as you want him to be. But God as he is. And so what we should do is humble ourselves before the God who is. And praise him and honor him and glorify him. Because the God you want him to be doesn't exist. God is who he is. He's revealed himself in his word. And we have no right to say, God, I don't like you. I don't like that. Number two, if you're a Christian, these words ought to humble you to the dust. Really, that's what they should do. 
This should humble our hearts before God and cause us to love him and worship him and serve him with a fervor that's far greater than ever before. And here's why I say that. If you're trusting in Christ today, it is not because of anything in you that sets you apart from anybody else. Your salvation, not just the part, the whole originated with the mercy and the compassion of God because he chose you for himself to make of you a a raptor-serving rebel, to make of you a child of promise and a child of the living God, someone born of the Spirit. Thank God he didn't pass you by. Thank God he didn't pass you by and justly leave you in your sin to the praise of his glory as a just judge. He could have done that. He could have done that. Praise Him that He took compassion on you and poured His mercy upon you. So to the praise of His glorious, so to the praise of His glorious grace, He might be magnified in you. My faith, my hope, my work—they're not the grounds of electing grace; they're the effect of it. And so, there's no ground for boasting except in God. God's sovereign freedom in election rings with praise to His glory because it displays His merciful, loving, kind intentions to unworthy sinful, hopeless sinners like us. And God gets the glory in all of that, doesn't he? Moreover, these words ought to strengthen our faith and our confidence in God's salvation. The doctrine of of God's sovereign freedom is good news because here's the deal. When you know, when you come to the realization by grace through faith that you have received the mercy and the compassion of God, that you are loved by God, that you are forgiven and justified and accepted by God, you know it's because the roots of your salvation... The roots of God's almighty commitment to save you are not shallow, but they go down deep into his sovereign will and his unchanging purpose. If you did nothing to get yourself saved, you can do nothing to lose your salvation. If you did nothing to make God look upon you with his love and his favor and his mercy and his compassion and choose you to be his own child, there's nothing you can do to make God say, oh, I made a mistake and cast you away. God makes no mistakes. And the gift and the calling of God are irrevocable, aren't they? For those of you that are here that haven't placed your hope and your faith in Christ alone, I want you to understand something. Your issue, the issue that's before you is not to try to discern if you've been chosen by God. That's not the point. For you, that's not the point of this text. You're never going to understand the doctrine that we've looked at here until you come to Christ. And I say that, and I don't mean that, you know, callously or as an insult. I'm just saying it because the Word of God teaches us that the things of God are foolishness to natural men. Okay? So then what do you take away from this text? Rather than just an academic understanding of everything that we've said. Here's what you take, it, take away from this. Listen. The words of this sermon this morning ought to move you to call upon God for mercy. To plead with God for mercy. To plead with God for compassion. Nobody deserves it. You don't deserve it. But that's just the point. That's just the point. God is merciful to sinners. He delights to show mercy to those who call upon his name. Call upon him for mercy. You don't have the right to demand it, but you can certainly plead for it. Plead for his mercy. Ask for his mercy. See the provision that he has made in Christ. Christ's righteous life and atoning death on the cross for the forgiveness and the salvation of sinners like you and me. Repent of your sins. And believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the words of Jonathan Edwards, I want you to listen to this. These are so good. He said, I'm going to close with this. God can bestow mercy upon you without the least prejudice to the honor of his holiness, which you have offended. 
or to the honor of his majesty, which you have insulted, or of his justice, which you have made your enemy, or of his truth, or any of his attributes. Let you be what sinner you may, God can, if he pleases, greatly glorify himself in your salvation and give you mercy and compassion, which will transform you forever. God is a merciful God. If he weren't, not a single person would be saved. And he shows his mercy to whom he will. No one, no one, listen to me, no one who has sincerely cried out to God for saving mercy has he ever denied. Let's pray together. Father, these are weighty words. These are weighty words. Powerful words. Mighty words. These are not words that you can easily just hear and ignore or pass by. Like these are, these are serious, serious words. And they demand a serious response. They demand a serious response this day. Father, I'm praying for serious responses from everyone in this room right now. That they would hear these words and they would respond in the way that they need to. For believers, that they would respond perhaps in repentance, for questioning this and arguing against this and fighting against it. Respond in worship and gratitude and thanksgiving for your great mercy that we do not deserve that we've received. Respond in just gladness and awe that the salvation that you have accomplished for us in Christ and what began in eternity past, Lord, we know cannot fall to the ground unfulfilled because your purposes and your plans toward your people, your remnant, are always fully accomplished. And I pray for those that are here this morning that just don't know Christ. They don't really give any evidence of saving faith in Christ. They don't give any evidence of the fruit of salvation in their lives. Perhaps they're religious. Perhaps they're not religious. Maybe they're just here today because they happen to show up. But I am praying this morning, Lord God, that you would make us all to recognize that the only salvation there is is to be found in Christ alone. That's it. And that, Lord, you would grant salvation to those who are your chosen ones this day. Bless us in this time as we, Father, just think on these words. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.